Well, good morning, church family. It's uh, really good to be together. I'm still incredibly grateful that we can come together and worship and grow together in God's word, even though we're apart during this time. Um, if you're joining us for the first time today, I just want to welcome you. And if it is your first time or whether you have been a part of our church since the very beginning, I want to encourage you uh, to go ahead and let us know where you're worshiping from. If you are um, in our state or maybe outside of our state, go ahead and use the comments, whether you're at Facebook or you're on YouTube or you're at live.involvedchurch.com. Just go ahead and comment and let us know where you are and maybe how many people are watching with you. It's really encouraging to see as we are gathering remotely um, that it's not just us here in Idaho, but we've got, we've got brothers and sisters in Christ all over the, the world, um, and not to mention just the United States. So go ahead and comment and let us know that you're there. Um, if you'd like us to follow up with you uh, later this week, you can also, like we mentioned earlier, go to involvechurch.com slash hub and fill out the response card there and we will reach out to you whether you have a prayer request or just want to connect or would like to grow further in your faith, we can reach out to you this week. So, um, Well, we're in the middle of a series called Romans Peace and we find ourselves in the middle of an interesting passage uh, in chapter 7 of Romans and in this passage we don't find... Paul talking a whole lot about peace. We, found, uh, we find him talking about sin, we find him talking about death, and we find him talking about our inability to keep God's commandments. But conspicuously absent is any concept of the idea of peace. Uh, in fact, our big idea today, uh, it, it doesn't even give a hint of peace. So here's, here's the big idea for today. The law demands a lot and we can't deliver. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I sometimes find myself wondering why Paul spends so much time talking through sin and death and our inability to keep God's commandments and our inability to measure up to God's commandments and his righteous requirement. And, uh, and sometimes I'll, uh, I'll voice that. It seems like Paul spends a lot of time talking about that. And then I have friends remind me that it's easy for us to forget that at the very core of our faith are these facts. First, we're lost beyond hope, but God steps into our lives and he brought us hope where there was no hope. We were completely weighed down by our sin and God stepped in and he took that load of sin and gave us freedom. We were blind, but now we see. We were completely dead in our sin, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus. So in order to understand the amazing forgiveness of God, we need to first understand truly how bad our sin is. There's a, huge, there's a huge contrast between holiness, righteousness, and our condition of sin. And once we understand how bad our sin is, we'll begin to understand just a little bit and have just a small glimpse of the amazing forgiveness that we find in Jesus. And once we understand that, it gives us peace with God. So with that said, I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us this morning and read through the passage uh, together after we pray. So let's go ahead and pray. Father God, thank you so much for bringing us together today. I ask that as we are digging into Romans chapter seven, verses seven through 12, God, that you would help us to understand what Paul is talking about in relation to the law and how sin uses it. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes 
once again, or maybe for the first time today, to our need for Jesus. We thank you so much for meeting our desperate need for a savior, and we thank you that you give us peace with you in him. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's go ahead and read through Romans 7, verses 7 through 12 together today. It says this, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So we find Paul in verse seven, uh, anticipating that people would say that, well, the law is sin or the, 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 the law itself is sin or so there's, there's something wrong with the law that God gave since he stated back in verse five that previous to our salvation, our sinful passions are aroused through the law to bear fruit for death. So you can look back to that in verse five where he says the sinful passions um, that we have in us, our flesh is aroused through the law to bear fruit for death. So what does he say uh, in response to that objection that there must be something wrong with the law then? He says in in verse seven there, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. There's not anything particularly special about this, this, uh, this command that he brings up here, do not covet, um, except to say that everyone is guilty of, uh, of not coveting and that uh, coveting, it's, it's rooted deep in our hearts and our minds. Um, and, and then secondly, uh, this, this idea of not coveting, um, we might not have known what it was if God uh, had not pointed it out to us. Uh, it's one of those sins where I can't just look at you and know that you're coveting something of mine, uh, that you are desiring something of mine that you don't have wrongly. Uh, the idea of coveting is something also that the world has very little to say about. Um, in fact, you probably won't find a, uh, a lot of people in the world saying that uh, desiring something that doesn't belong to you, that belongs to somebody else, is a bad thing. In fact, they might say that, uh, that that's, a, that's a good uh, drive for, for ambition in it, and it causes ambition in you. So the question is, how do we know what coveting is? And I think, I think Paul realized that coveting in and of itself is, is unique because the only way we know what coveting is is because God told us that it's a sin and, uh, in his law. And so God revealed to us that coveting itself is bad. Paul makes the point here that the, he starts out by saying, no, the law has a good purpose. God gave the law so that we might know what sin is and have life. And while we don't find salvation in keeping the law, God still gave, uh, gave his law to, to us for the benefit 
of those who seek to follow them because he loves us. So uh, I want to share with you a passage out of Leviticus. And this passage um, is uh, Leviticus 18.5, and it says this, Keep my statutes and ordinances. A person will live if he does them. I am the Lord. That's something that Paul. That's something that Leviticus says, and Paul is referencing this by the commandments which God gave us to give us life. Sin has twisted that and used the opportunity that God gave us for life, and it's it has caused sin in our lives. So God gave the commandments to the people of Israel that they may have life. And then Paul says this in verse 8. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, for apart from the law, sin is dead. So I'd like to, I'd like to share a short video clip with you. I'm going to go ahead and roll that now. Hey, guys, wait up! Whoa. Sandy Plank and someone. He called. He said it was called uh, a butt. Wow, that's a pretty big butt. Oh, look at me! I'm gonna go touch the butt. <laughs> 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 yeah. Let's see you get closer. Okay. Nemo! No! Dad? Oh, you're about to swim into open water! No, I wasn't it's gonna go up! It's just a good thing I was here. If I hadn't no, shown up, sorry, I don't know... he wasn't gonna go! Yeah, he was too afraid! No, I wasn't! This does not concern you, kids. And you're lucky I don't tell your parents you were out there. You know you can't swim well! I can swim fine, Dad, okay? No, it's not okay. You shouldn't be anywhere near here! Okay, I was right. You know what? We'll start school in a year or two. No, Dad! Just because you're scared of the ocean... Clearly you're not ready, and you're not coming back until you are. You think you could do these things, but you just can't, Nemo! I hate you. There's nothing to see. Gather uh, over there! Excuse me, is there anything I can do? I am a scientist, sir. Uh, is there any problem? You know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt things. He, he isn't a good swimmer, and I just think it's a little too soon for him to be out here unsupervised. Well, I can assure you, he's quite safe with me. Look, I'm sure he is. But you have a large class, and he can get lost, you know, from sight if...
right, so once again, God has given the law out of love, not, not out of a desire to limit us. He gave it for our freedom. So let me ask you something. What is your first instinct when I th- say the words, thou shalt not? Are you thinking, hey, Pastor Luke, please tell me more. Complete that sentence. Please tell me something that I cannot do. Outline it for me. I wanna know all of the things that I cannot do. I think you're probably not asking that question. Uh, More often than not, our first reaction to someone or something placing a restriction on us or a rule on us is a negative reaction, right? Uh, I realize that if if Nemo, in that clip that I showed you just a minute ago, I realize that if he had not responded in in that way to his dad, we wouldn't, he wouldn't have been captured and we wouldn't have this cool movie uh, called Finding Nemo. But that aside, his dad said, do not touch that boat out of a concern for him. He loved him. He didn't want anything bad to happen to him. And then what does Nemo do? He touches the boat. He does exactly the opposite of what his dad asked him to do. And then, um, and then you know the rest of the movie, hopefully. If not, you can see it. It's a great movie. But Paul says it's the same with God's law. We are told what is bad for us and we are told what is good for us. We are told what to do, we're told what not to do, but instead of responding in obedience, knowing that God has given those rules and restrictions because he loves us, we respond with rebellious attitude and do what we ought not to do. So I struggled with this concept quite a bit as I was, as I was working through this passage. Um, it's, uh, it seemed like to me that what Paul was saying was the law had somehow created or produced this sin in me that wasn't already there. Um, but that's not what Paul is saying at all. As I, was, uh, as I was digging into this concept, I ran across a really good illustration that helped me better understand the concept he's talking about here, and I'd like to go ahead and share it with you. So if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you know there comes a point in the story where the main character, whose name is Christian, encounters the house with a person in it named Interpreter. So you've got the main character, Christian, and you've got this, uh, this character he encounters called Interpreter, and he has a home, invites him into his home, and in the house on the floor is a lot of dust, and that dust is, uh, it signifies sin. And Interpret hands Christian a broom, and the broom is the law. An interpreter tells Christian to clean the dust, to sweep the dust with the broom. And so Christian proceeds to sweep the dust with the broom. But instead of cleaning it up and, and, and cleaning the, this, this cabin that interpreter has, as Christian attempts to sweep up the, the dust with the broom, the dust just kicks up and it begins to choke out Christian and uh, gets to the point where he can barely breathe. And the whole point here is that that sin cannot be removed or cleaned up by the law. In fact, the law actually just stirs up uh, all of our sin. sin. The sinful, and something else that's important to realize, and this is where the, the illustration helped me quite a bit, is that the sinful nature is already there. The dust didn't just appear out of thin air. The, the broom didn't create the dust. The dust was already there, just like our sin is already there. Um, the law was given, and it is a good thing, but the law itself cannot take away sin. It just stirs up sin within us and causes our rebellious sin nature to surface and creates us to sin even for, uh, further. So as we attempt to use the law to wipe out our own sinful nature or somehow 
fabricate our own righteousness, we find ourselves choked out by our own sin. That's what Paul is is trying to convey here. So in the next several verses, we we find Paul recounting the fact that he comes to the realization again and again that he has no righteousness of his own and that his flesh took something good, the law, and turned it into an occasion for evil. So here's, here's what he says in verse nine. Let's look at it together. Once I was alive apart from the law when the commandment came, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again. So if you know anything about Paul, uh, you know that he had this dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road. He came to Jesus Christ when he saw him. But even before Christ, uh, Paul was never apart from the law. Um, He was a Jew that prided himself on strict adherence to the law. So what's he talking about here? Uh, It's it's a little bit unclear. I'll start start by saying first that there's there's a ton of different views about what Paul is talking about in this passage. Um, Around three or four predominant views and then like lots of variations on those, those views. But eventually I landed on this, that Paul here is talking about himself uh, and he's, uh, he, he's thinking about himself um, pre-salvation, but also even after salvation. So remember, it, God wants to get at our hearts. And while Paul might have been going through all of the motions when he was a Jew that was following the letter of the law, his heart was far from God. He was proud. And in the sense that the law had not touched his heart and his eyes were not open, he was apart from the law. Uh, But then there was a change of heart that God brought about in his heart and in his mind. So I I do believe that there was a miraculous transformation that we read about in Scripture that happened to Paul. You can read about it in Acts. Um, But as you read about Paul, you also know that after after his conversion to Christianity, he spent several years uh, before he actually went into active ministry. And during that time, he spent it becoming, um, becoming uh, a follower of Jesus, understanding who Jesus was, uh, and even considering ministry. He spent it learning, studying, growing uh, in his newfound faith. So I'm guessing that this is probably the time that as he reviewed God's, God's law, that God was sifting his heart over and over again showing him how he had been proud, he'd been arrogant, and he had a self-righteous attitude uh, that rather than being righteous, he was in fact a sinner in desperate need of a savior. The picture we get of Paul is one that's similar to a Pharisee, Jesus brought up uh, in a parable. So I wanna share this, uh, a portion of this parable, it's in Luke chapter 18, and it says, it says this in verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. So the Pharisee in this parable is boasting in the fact that he is going through all of the motions, but the law has not done what it was, what it was supposed to do which is convict, us of his, uh, convict, convict him of his sin. Um, rather, it's puffed him up with pride. It's given him a sense of self-righteousness. Instead of showing Paul the reality of his guilt before God, the law had puffed him up with pride. And so what did he do? He looked down on others and he persecuted the early church, severely persecuted the early church. He counted on the fact that he himself had fulfilled all righteousness and that 
somehow made him acceptable in the sight of God. But then he says this, Romans chapter 7, verse 9. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Paul is, is showing us how he realized again and again this point that James made. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Paul is, uh, is, is showing us how his heart was sifted over and over again by God, showing him that he has no grounds for stating to God that he has righteousness of his own. He is not self-righteous. Righteous. And why isn't he self-righteous? It's because of the depth of our sinfulness. He said in uh, verse 11, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. You know what's interesting about this verse uh, is, is that uh, it personifies sin. So it talks about sin in a way that demonstrates it's more than just an, a single act. Uh, it, it's, uh, the, the way that I think about it is sin is like this smart plague. Um, it ruins, it, like, it almost has a mind of its own. It ruins, it seeks to deceive, it seeks to destroy, and it takes even the most beautiful gift from God, which is the law that's intended to give us life, and it uses it for our destruction. And you know what's worse? What's worse about this is we don't even fight it. We find ourselves at best being easily deceived by sin and at worst just caving to it willingly um, and choosing what is wrong. And this sinful condition, it goes all the way back, all the way back to the very beginning in the garden in Genesis 3, and I want, or in Genesis 2. And I wanted to share that with you because uh, I, think, I think this shows that this is common to every single person, um, not not just Paul. Uh, it says in Genesis 2, uh, 2, verses 16 and 17, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will die. And, uh, and uh, I just want to point out what God said here. Um, he said that the man is free, which is, which is uh, very different. When you think about God giving commandments, uh, God said he's, he is free. He commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. Um, but he has, he has one prohibition. Don't eat of this tree, this one tree, because it's bad for you, you'll die. And what happens after that? Let's take a look. Chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So I wanna pause for just a second in the story. So what has happened here is the serpent is twisting God's words. Um, God didn't really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Here you have the serpent already fostering the rebellious streak that goes against God's command. And so God gave a command stated it, you're free to do anything you want except for this one thing. But instead, he rephrased it and said, you can't eat from any tree in the garden, right? That's what God said. He capitalizes on Eve's weakness by phrasing it like God didn't offer life and freedom, but rather uh, that God wants to limit our freedom. But that's not the God that he is. He actually gives us freedom, but he gives us parameters in which to live 
because he loves us and he doesn't want what's bad to happen to us. Um, then Eve corrects him and reminds him of what God actually said. And then the serpent at that point outright contradicts what God has command, commanded. And then in verse 6, look what happens. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And uh, so the first commandment given and the only commandment given to Adam and Eve gave rise to sin because of that first choice to rebel against God and that rebellious streak continues in us to this day. So we see throughout all of scripture that sin is cunning, that it deceives us into thinking that what is bad is good and what is good is bad. Um, but here we have Paul showing us that while our sin nature takes something that is good and uses it for bad, that the law isn't to blame. He wants to make it very, very clear to us that God's law is still good. That's not the problem here. So take a look. Verse 12 of chapter 7. The law, so then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Despite the fact that sin is identified by the law, it's, uh, it's stirred up by the law, and our self-righteousness is torn down or it's killed by the law, the law is still good. The commandment to covet, uh, so we'll just use Paul's example, the commandment to covet, um, it's still holy and just and good. Just because we have a propensity to covet, when God says do not covet, only serves to show just how fallen we are and how much we need Jesus and we need him to wash us clean and make us more like him. But it doesn't call into question the commandment do not covet. That's still a good command. It's meant for our, our good. So I bring up this uh, the big idea once more today. The law demands a lot and we can't deliver. And so at this point, you should be feeling the weight of sin. I'm feeling the weight of sin as I read through this. I go, okay, not only uh, do, I, do I struggle with sin, but I struggle with my ability to keep God's laws and commandments and my motivation is all messed up and it's off. What am I supposed to do? Paul wants us to recognize that even our attempts to adhere to a law that is good is tainted by sin and that by, by our very nature, we twist that which is a good gift from God and, it, and we turn it into something that condemns us. And that's all that we're left with. This is a really, really sad message. Um, but I want to share with you something that Paul also wrote about the power of sin and the law. And here it is. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, what we just read. But look what he says. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to say to you is that Jesus Christ did not have a rebellious streak. He saw the law for what it was, exactly what Paul just stated. The law is good, the law is holy, and the law is just. And Jesus is the only person to have obeyed it perfectly. His nature didn't twist it this, this good gift from God, he, did, he didn't twist it into something uh, that became evil and bad. Instead, he did what Leviticus 18.5 said. 
just as a reminder, it says, keep my statutes and ordinances. A person will live if he does them. I am the Lord. Not only did Jesus keep the statutes and ordinances, he did live, he died for us when he should have lived. He rose again, and guess what? He is the Lord, he is God. And as you and I trust in Christ, we are afforded that perfect obedience in the sight of God. And more than that, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and now given the ability to love God, to love his word, and to love his commandments. And our our hearts are sifted by the Holy Spirit like Paul's heart, and we're changed from the inside out. Instead of adhering to the law as a means to puff ourselves up with pride and to look down on others, we now have an accurate and right view of ourselves and of God. He is God, we are not. We follow his commandments and his statutes because we know that he loves us. He's demonstrated in his son Jesus Christ that he loves us and we love him and we love his commandments. And we follow after Jesus, not out of self-righteousness, but we follow him out of humility and out of love for who he is and what he's accomplished for us. That's Paul's message here. He's always pointing us back to Jesus. And so we wrap up once again with the law demands a lot and we can't deliver. But God's grace is big. So today I I think it's good for us to end with a few points that could challenge us and uh, encourage us to apply what we know from this passage to our daily lives. So let's just, let's go through a few things together. Um, First, um, I want to encourage us to think of one person today that we've avoided. So maybe you have somebody in your life that you have avoided talking with about the concept of law. If it's so important for us to understand the depth of our sin, one of the ways that we understand what sin is is by understanding the law. And whether it's like a general law um, or it's specifically something that you pull from Scripture, is there somebody in your life that you've avoided talking about the law with? Um, Those things which are good and right and true that are handed to us by God. Um, Think about a good time when you could bring up the law with them. What would it look like to speak the truth in love to that person? And I just wanna encourage you, we're gonna take a couple minutes here. I wanna encourage you to begin praying for them now. And then secondly, uh, I'd, Let's go ahead and take, uh, let's take some time and ask God to begin searching our hearts. So let me ask you this. When was the last time that you asked God to sift your heart, to search your heart and invite him to reveal any kind of sins that you might be blind to? Um, there's some sins that are really obvious that we know that are the forefront of our minds. We know that we struggle with that. We know that we committed that sin and we need God to help us with it. But but um, the sin of self-righteousness, or there, there are even some other sins that we're blind to, um, that we think we're good, we're doing great in that area, when in fact we need God to change us and to mold us and make us more like Jesus. Uh, I wanna encourage you to take some time to, uh, to ask God to search your heart and to reveal those areas to you and to me. And so we're gonna take a couple minutes and do that, and then we will finish out our service today.